Wayne uh, couldn't be here. There's an illness in the family. We hope everything works out well, but Mark's kindly offered to give uh, his talk commissioning through evaluation, a case for funding new technologies, and then Mark will uh, proceed into his own remarks. Mark. Thank you very much, Perry. Uh, it seems a little odd to uh, stand here and give Wayne's talk. But anyway, uh, he's a commissioner. I've been having battles with the commissioners for the last three years, so it's a, a slightly odd biological phenomenon. I'll, I'll have to, uh, he sent his slides through, and I'll have to basically read them, I'm afraid. But I will give some context to this. Uh, and because I'm not Wayne, I could probably say one or two things that he might not have said. Um, so commissioning through evaluation was a process, actually, that really um, came out of the attempt to introduce TAVI into the United Kingdom. And in fact, in government circles, it used to be referred to as the TAVI model before we renamed it as commissioning through evaluation. Uh, and although um, I'm delighted that NHS England have taken hold of this, it started off actually as a um, collaboration between um, a load of stakeholder partners. And that was the uh, stakeholder professional societies who had an interest in the evidence, the industry members, the uh, NICE were actually on board, MHRA were on board and um, a discussions with the Department of Health and the commissioners in particular. And it was through that discussion that they realized that there were some gaps in the way that we actually adopted technology. Uh, and the commissioning through evaluation uh, was proposed as a model. It actually came from the professional societies as a model uh, to um, the commissioners and has subsequently been uh, submitted to NHS England, and I'm delighted that they've taken an interest in it. And one lesson for me is, in fact, if we look at the FDA model, is that I begin to see that there is an interest in the FDA talking to the clinical community far more than they used to. And I think that's something uh, in terms of joined up thinking that we've got to do, and the theme of my talk is going to be joined up thinking, that if actually we get people into the, into the same office at the same time, we could probably move a lot faster on a lot of issues. So commissioning through evaluation is an approach that will enable some services to be commissioned that are otherwise not routinely commissioned by the NHS and to be commissioned on an initially limited basis so that further data can be collected to inform the development of a substantive commissioning policy so that there's uh, exploratory evidence but not sufficient to persuade commissioners to support it. And so it uh, supports the commissioning approach where early studies for treatments are suggested for benefit but when additional information is perceived to be required. Uh, either to confirm health benefits, to assist the selection of patients who are most likely to benefit, or conversely to help identify uh, where there's either no or limited benefit. Can we, oh, there we are. Uh, so the proposal that's been agreed by NHS England is to support the introduction of this program. Uh, it's uh, uh, a project that's gonna be generated through a thing called the CRGs, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, it's aligned with the NHS outcomes framework and uh, it uh, uh, goes up through the CRG to a group called the Clinical Priorities Advisory Group and I'll say something else about that in my talk. And they've chosen six technologies in which they don't think there's sufficient evidence uh, for full commissioning at the moment. Two of them are non-cardiovascular and four are cardiovascular. So uh, they've got an organization now that, so there's a stakeholder strategy for each program. There's a steering group and working groups of each of the technologies, and all of the stakeholders will be represented uh, within those uh, administrative frameworks. There's clearly defined entry criteria and uh, clearly defined criteria for the centers that will be selected to be commissioned uh, to actually do some of the uh, clinical work. There's also clearly defined exit strategies. So, uh, at what point will you make a decision about routine commissioning? 
not routine commissioning, or at the moment there's insufficient evaluation, so uh, we'll continue the program. We've got to agree outcome measures and the success criteria, uh, and of course you need this with data, so we have to develop and monitor the databases, and uh, they are also interested, of course, in a protocol from withdrawal of the program if we start to see adverse events. And uh, the service will clearly continue not to be routinely funded uh, for, um, uh, by the NHS for patients who fall outside of the scope of the evaluation. It's uh, not perceived as being observational research. There is clearly this feeds into an observational research agenda, uh, but it's actually supporting an audit program that runs alongside the continuation, uh, at the continual collection of research, either on a national or international basis. Uh, there's a formal evaluation process, uh, and there's a timetable uh, that could be extended um, if we don't come to a sort of an exit point that we're happy with. And so we need evaluation measures that uh, include data on value to the National Health Service from a clinical and cost perspective. Uh, we need information on treatment costs, and we also need some form of a, a comparison with uh, what might be an alternative uh, treatment. Uh, it's important, and we've just heard Morella talking about quality of life and patient experience, and to some extent that will be an interesting uh, concept for us to discuss potentially about how important these things become uh, as opposed to the more traditional evaluation by quality. And in terms of the next step, um, they, uh, they have asked NICE to lead on the evaluation not only of the CTE process, but each project within CTE. There's a discussion going on about how that's uh, done because, of course, the stakeholder organizations within the groups uh, also have a, an evaluatory process. And so the interrelationship between NICE and the whole of the stakeholder group uh, will uh, need to be developed. So um, the commissioning decisions will either result in continuation of commissioning a service uh, in all suitable provider locations. It could be that they'll continue to be commissioned services in a managed way in a limited number of providers, uh, but uh, that one of the driving forces for commissioning is equity of access for the whole population. Uh, and providers would be uh, supported um, based on appropriate capability, their capacity and their patient flows. Or, of course, it, um, this service could be decommissioned uh, because uh, there is general lack of uh, support of evidence uh, outcomes or they may be too costly. And that's Wayne's talk. So I'm going to now uh, change into myself. So if you could load my slides, please. And I'll give a slightly different perspective on the issue. Uh, John Martin was accused yesterday of insulting a few people. I'm one of the interventional cardiologists that you shouldn't be talking to. Uh, I, am, I do represent the coalface. But um, John, two things to say. Number one is that every visionary needs a series of lieutenant generals who are, are um, very specific on the detail and have to grind out through the regulatory uh, forces that we uh, have to contend with to try and get from A to B. And secondly, when your plot pops, we'll be there to support you. Anyway, so I've, I've been given this title of streamlining the commissioning process, uh, aiming for an early and efficient integrated clinical regulatory and reimbursement pathway. Uh, so I'm an interventional cardiologist. Um, I've been highly involved with the professional societies for many years. I helped develop some of the national registries in the United Kingdom. Uh, and I'm working with the National Institute of Clinical Outcomes Research at the moment, and in particular I'm the clinical lead for their health technologies group. I've advised the MHRA for many years uh, on certain cl clinical uh, programs, and I've had experience working with NICE, both in submissions from professional societies for NICE technology appraisals, and I've taken part in NICE uh, guideline development groups. Uh, 
So that's uh, who I am. So what should commissioners really want? And um, the baseline is, of course, they want evidence on efficacy and safety and information on cost effectiveness. And one of the problems is that often efficacy and safety data comes out well before we have a real handle on cost effectiveness. And that is a slight problem. The other thing is that uh, commissioners make decisions, but their decisions and the speed of their decisions seems to me, from experience, to be totally dependent on the political and economic framework within which they are functioning. And of course, that's not good at the moment. So George Osborne on Monday was talking about the fact that whoever's in power um, next year are going to make an additional 25 billion cuts. And the, although it's reported across the right and the left-wing press, uh, the right-wing are, uh, are loading up towards um, abolishing the ring-fencing of NHS funding. So those are uh, potential threats. So evidence of efficacy, well, of course, there's difficulties. How much evidence? What level of evidence? Is it medium term, short term, long term evidence? So let's take something like renal stenting or renal denovation. Uh, what commissioners might want to know is how many strokes, heart failures, and renal failures are going to be uh, um, prevented. Uh, and all we can give them in the early phases is how much blood pressure drop there's going to be. So how do you bridge that gap? What alternatives are there? Uh, should we have generic models uh, looking at technology groups, or does it all have to be device-specific? In terms of safety, we have to know what level of risk is acceptable. And, of course, cost-effectiveness, you have to know what's the acceptable cutoff. Uh, can decisions, we need to know whether decisions can be overridden by political expediency, and we have examples of where that's undoubtedly happened. And how does this play uh, into a constrained budget? So, in fact, Wayne and others have said to me, and other members of the um, CRG, that if you want um, uh, the introduction of new technologies, we have a single budget, so you have to have less of something that's already established. Now, I don't actually see that that's a correct um, analysis, and we can discuss that in more detail if we have time. So adoption of, of new technology have to depend, of course, whether you're on a constrained or an unconstrained environment. We're in a constrained environment, but if we look at uh, market forces and just look at the free market, all industry members know about the Gartner hype cycle where you uh, get a peak of enthusiasm followed by the trough of disillusionment and it may be that renal denovation is going to hit this a little bit earlier than expected. But I don't think renal denovation is dead and I think there's going to be a great research capability uh, over the next few years as we explore what this technology offers, uh, um, offers patient care. And then this is created into science and uh, called the diffusion of innovation. This has been developed predominantly in the agricultural world, but I think is perceived as being um, a, a science. So whatever feeds into knowledge, there's communication and persuasion, and individuals slowly come to a decision point, and they decide either to adopt or to reject. If they reject, they could continue to reject, but there's a potential for later adoption depending on new information. They could adopt with continuing adoption, or they could uh, discontinue, and either because something better comes along or because we get disenchanted. And of course, in my lifetime, I've seen technologies come and go, and of course, all venture capitalists know that they have winners and losers. So I've seen brachytherapy come and go, I've seen st certain stent types come and go, uh, I've seen uh, other technologies disappear, atherectomies disappeared because stenting was better. And also, there's a process of the S-shaped curve as to how you uh, get adoption once you get it. And so there's the early adopters and the laggards. Now, the laggards may be conservative because they just really want to be persuaded that that evidence is really right. 
And that's a difference between laggards because your countries and your country's regulatory bodies are forcing you to be laggards. And that's, I think, where the frustration lies. And of course, there's the other thing that as we get new adopters coming along, the innovators do well to start off with, and then over time their influence um, is dwarfed by the Me Too companies that come in online. But there are issues in healthcare. We're not in an uh, unconstrained environment, and that's because of the potential for harm. And there's potential for harm because we don't do things as well as we should do. We have problems with selective trial result publication. We have conflicts of interest, and there is, frankly, bad behavior. And we're all responsible for bad behavior. There's responsible, I think there's bad behavior in universities. I think there's bad behavior in professional societies. I think there's bad behavior at clinical level with clinicians giving treatments to patients when they have not yet got the full evidence base that warrants it. But there's also bad behavior in industry uh, ranging from the outright um, uh, uh, illegal behavior that we've seen with uh, um, breast implants uh, to sending out workforces that are not fully informed about the technologies that they're dealing with. So you do need regulation and we do need transparency and actually it's quite easy to regulate and it's quite easy to be transparent. So we won't go through all the regulatory approvals and processes that we've been talking about. This is a UK perspective as opposed to a US perspective. But we have uh, already identified the fact there's inconsistency in the notified bodies. We've heard about the perceptions and it's no good from my perspective for Ian Hudson to say what problem, I didn't know there was a problem and if industry feel that there's a problem with the MHRA then why have industry and MHRA not got together to actually sort out those problems so that they're perceived and we can work out strategies to overcome them the research protocol uh, a regulatory pathway has also been seen as overly stringent and industry does perceive it as being overly parochial and we heard yesterday about the fact that it's crazy to have multiple European uh, uh, decision-making processes when uh, you've got a global strategy for research. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, NICE, and one of the problems I'm going to come to is about the IPGs, because it doesn't influence how we get um, uh, adoption, uh, and it, there is a perception that the technology appraisal process is slow. Uh, I'm not saying that's uh, uh, not appropriate, I'm saying there's a perception. And then, uh, in addition to that, we have all the issues of coding and reimbursement. And my feeling is that there is a problem because there's no or little joined up thinking in all of those processes. And that would be quite easily overcome by getting a few people into a room to sort it out. There's also a political paradox. And Julian uh, Hubbard's not here today. But uh, it's no good politicians standing up saying that the NHS is open for business. And then to set up a national health service system itself that's so full of administrative, regulatory, and financial system blocks that mean it's impossible to actually take it forward. So they want pharma and medtech companies to come into the UK, and that's great because it produces employment, it helps the economic growth, it produces tax. The governments can come along with innovation, health and wealth, think tank documents. They can create academic health science centers. So it's actually wonderful for the ivory tower system. But successful companies equal successful products. And actually, it's a bit rich, both from the clinical uh, world, but you then get greater demand, greater healthcare expenditure, and that's what they don't want. And uh, so the fact then is that the countries are doing quite a lot of this research um, and evaluation. It gets a bit thin with industry when that rhetoric doesn't play into early adoption uh, in, in those specific countries. So who controls all of this? And there is this view amongst the clinical and industry community that there's, is this all a cock-up or is it conspiracy? And some people believe that there is conspiracy, that there's deliberate non-joined-us-uppedness or whatever the expression is. 
uh, or, or uh, whether it's controlled cockadapitalism, I don't know what it is, but what I think we are at least allowed to ask ourselves that if there are regulatory constraints, what is going on and how can we fix it? And you can't help the cynicism that the longer it takes, the less money is spent. That may be a view. But we should also try and persuade people that actually, that if we could get this regulatory framework and burden simpler and less expensive, then devices and treatments would be less expensive. So uh, there is a matter of balance here, and we were talking yesterday about the matter of a balance, and I don't think we've got this balance right. So I'm not going to talk much about from first-in-man to commissioning. I'm going to talk more about from phase three onwards. But the fact that there is a lack of first-in-man in the United States and the United Kingdom, it is a problem, and it needs to be fixed. And the question is, if this group of august people in this room can't fix it, there is an issue. So the trials, we have heard that the trials and the regulatory processes are prohibitively expensive. So something's got to change. We've got to do trials in a different way, and we've got to do them in a, in a, a far less expensive way. Uh, we've heard yesterday about the need for early iteration. Early iteration, it seems to me, should be the default for virtually all of this early stage um, work uh, to get to the clinical uh, coalface. And uh, it's not surprising, then, that first-in-man has been taken to unregulated or poorly regulated environments. Now, there are ethical and moral dimensions about that, but, you know, industry are there to make money and to, and to uh, support their, their shareholders. So this is the reality, and if we're going to fix it, then something has got to be done. But let's work a little bit on what I call phase three and beyond. So NICE, I think, does have a pretty good program in, in horizon scanning, identifying uh, early data, and producing the interventional procedures guidance. Well, many people think, well, what's the purpose of an IPG? And I'll come back to that later. Uh, almost invariably, we then have to wait be between the IPG and uh, additional data, observational data, and um, uh, health economic analysis before we get to the technology appraisal, and then we get diffusion. So I think the early phase of this is actually extremely timely, but uh, in terms of the gap between an IPG and TA, that is extremely long, during which there is either no or very sporadic commissioning. Uh, in the old days, it used to rely on independent uh, individual funding requests, and uh, that was fine, and commissioners gave money for individual patients and got no data whatsoever, so they never knew uh, uh, what was the outcome of the patients that they were funding the treatments for. And uh, even when you get a positive technology appraisal, there is an extraordinarily slow uh, concept of national commissioning. So these things ought to be fixable. The other thing about reimbursement and coding and tariffs. So in the United Kingdom, if we get an IPG, it, combination, it, it generates a combination of coders. And I understand it. They are not able to generate a new code at this point. And uh, in the old days, they used to have a defined group within the Department of Health who industry could go to try and get this sorted out. Now they have to make a double application to NHS England and monitor. And there's also a ridiculously slow timetable in any form of tariff shifts and tariff decision-making. Uh, and there's no tariff uplift for new technology. I'm not an expert on this, and I'm not an expert in the United States, and Perry will tell us more about this, I'm sure. But there previously was little uh, dialogue between the FDA and the coding reimbursement processes. I understand you have different coding and reimbursement processes dependent on the payer that you're dealing with. Uh, there are the ability now for parallel pathways. And if you produce something like a new drug-eluting stent, there's a code already available, so you can move quite fast. If there's a new technology, you have to go through another application. And uh, the fact is that the FDA and the coding re reimbursement people might need a different level, a different uh, uh, standard of of uh, uh, evidence before they make decisions. So there is a gap. So um, 
What's the current UK commissioning positions? The trouble is, of course, that governments come and go and we keep on having changes in the way we do business. And actually, if you go to the NHS um, England National Commissioning Board website and try and work out exactly who does what, it's virtually impossible. So I, I'm going to give a bottom-up perspective. I work for, or I'm part of a, a thing called a clinical reference group. So this is people who volunteer their time on a professional basis to be part of, I think there are 76 clinical reference groups now covering the whole scope of medicine and surgery. And we give advice on what we think should be um, commissioned. And that advice goes to a thing called the CPAG, which is the Clinical Priorities Advisory Group, who don't make decisions because they're only an advisory group. So the advice goes to more advice, and they make advice to someone else. And I think it's the Quality and Risk Committee, but I'm not sure. And I think they're a financial risk committee. And as far as I know, they don't make final decisions either. And they make a decision somehow in the ether. It goes up to the National Commissioning Board, and decisions are made on routine commissioning or specialised commissioning, or indeed no commissioning. So it's no good, for example, it's, well, it's not that attractive when we went through um, this process with renal denovation. So the commissioning board came up with a decision in December 2012, this was a draft policy, that we will commission renal denovation according with the criteria outlined. And those criteria were very specific. We had already determined with the joint societies that we, there was insufficient data on renal denovation, but that the UK should be party to some commissioning in this area, and that should be a party to some work in this uh, area. And uh, um, the policy simply said it should be supported in a limited fashion through commissioning, through evaluation. The policy, it said, also said, the document said that the policy uh, outlines the arrangement for funding. In fact, if you look later, the, 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 they didn't give the information about funding. In April, they came out with a full commit, uh, the policy, which was that re renal denovation was not to be uh, routinely funded use in routinely um, in resistant hypertension. However, they did support the commissioning through evaluation process, and so these four technologies, three new, and one where they've decided, which has been used for a lot of time, but they've decided that the evidence is not yet secure, uh, they have agreed to put through the commissioning through evaluation process. And where commissioning through evaluation, uh, from my perspective, uh, will be an advantage, there's an agreed program of evaluation that is commissioning into phase four trials and into an observational national registry. It hopefully will be faster. There will be agreed levels of commissioning. We'll monitoring the results but also putting them into context with the whole of the national and international body of evidence that comes out over the next few years and it's a coordinated program between all stakeholders. There's greater advantage because I think we can enrich the trial data with data from an all-comers registry. We can test whether results can be translated and reproduced in a broader set of patients. We capture data on all patients treated, and that's one of the things we're trying to do with the national registries. And it means that the UK can contribute to the R&D phase of introducing new technology. And I think that working with NICE and MHRA has advantages, not disadvantages. But the disadvantage is whether it will be responsive enough and whether it's going to be relevant and timely. And it has taken quite a lot of time to get this process up and running. But hopefully, we've been through a learning curve and we can make moves. But there are still uh, sceptics out there who wonder whether it will be any better than the, the, the previously unsatisfactory systems. Uh, but my feeling is that there is an advantage and we should let it run its well. So in terms of aiming for a new uh, a sort of paradigm of how we do this, the clinical industry interface is to be encouraged and we need the early trials and uh, we need UK participation in those. So we do need that the notified bodies, MHRA, and research approvals to be done in parallel they need to be light-touch regulation, and it needs to be done relatively rapidly. 
Uh, patient and care representation should be uh, represented at all stages of this process. Once we start to get results, these are looked at by NICE, they're looked at by the commissioning groups, and they're looked at by um, the professional bodies, but they're all done in isolation. And actually, it's not beyond the wit of man to actually say to NICE, you don't have to be as independent as you feel that you need to be, and we should be able to have a dialogue. And then we can agree to be certain, or we can agree to be uncertain, and that sometimes we'll agree to disagree. And it's not beyond the wit of man, actually, to then create policies of how do you handle those disagreements, what are the problems, and how can we then move on to the next phase. But if we're certain, we could be certain that we shouldn't use a product, or we can be certain that we should use with either special or routine arrangements. That creates the IPG. But then the big gap is that there's absolutely no context at all in terms of the coding and reimbursement issues, and uh, we have no ability to talk to commissioners about how we then move to the next step. So that is something that we should uh, bring into the system. If we're uncertain, it could be that there's uncertainty about cost-effectiveness, that we need additional data, longer-term data from some of the early trials, we need more trials, and we need data from observational registries, so let's set them up. And that could be industry-sponsored or, su uh, or supported, but often the industry says, we've done our bit and we've done enough. And there is a problem that if we have investigated specific trials in the UK, we can't get anyone to commission the activity. So we need some joined-up thinking between the commissioners and the, um, um, the research charities and research funders. And we would like joined-up thinking between NICE and the NIHR so that we're all beginning to talk about the particular technologies and the particular things that we feel are important we want to move rapidly on. So uh, we then get additional results from all of this work and then hopefully we create uh, a, a faster uh, level of certainty. We can then move to the NICE technology appraisal and then move forward and uh, there should be a, a rapid response to try and um, reset tariffs if necessary. And I am a champion for commission for evaluation, so I think it should support this gap and help us to move from the IPG to the technology appraisal. Is that a perfect system? I doubt it, but uh, we also have to say, well, should every technology should go through, go through this? How is selection made? Uh, certainly groundbreaking technology should, should go through it, and then the discussion needs to, to be had about iterations. So I will conclude by saying there are, there are too many delays in the system. There's little or no join-up thinking, but it's not beyond the wit of man to sort that out. Uh, we've seen improvements already, I think, more on, in the United States in terms of the FDA and the clinical communities coming together, and I think uh, that should happen on this side of the pond. But I think the building blocks are actually all there, so I'm not proposing any new building blocks, uh, and it wouldn't take much to make significant gains. I believe that Commission for Evaluation does have an important role to play, uh, but we need all of this activity, the cost of this activity need to fall if we start to get clinical activity in the, in the US and the United Kingdom. And certainly, in terms of this decision-making process within commissioners, I think we need clarity about what freedoms the commissioners had, because actually the early discussions with the commissioners, they were very, very keen to support this process. But then decisions have been gone up into the ether, and then blocks have appeared. And they don't clearly have as many freedoms as they would like to have had when we first opened up the discussion. So I'm going to stop there and feed on to Perry, who's uh, much uh, more knowledgeable I am on terms of reimbursement issues, and then we can have a panel discussion. Thank you, Mark.